Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Um, A year ago, we began using the Gospel Project curriculum for our kids' church, and then in January, we started using the 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 curriculum for our preaching schedule in in Big Church, Um, and as well as in our community groups, as I mentioned earlier. uh, I lamented out loud a number of times last year that there was no uh, personal devotional track that went with the curriculum, and uh, lo and behold, um, this year as we start uh, the new three-year cycle, they've added that to the curriculum. There's now, uh, when you look at the, um, the participants' uh, guide uh, for, for the group work, uh, at the back there's five days of, uh, of personal devotional reading, scripture reading, uh, contained in that. So, so what that means then is, is that we're, for those who uh, feel so inclined, and I hope that many of us will, uh, we can not only be focusing on the same thing in our um, preaching time and in our children's ministry and in our group, but also personally uh, reading the word together uh, throughout the week. So I'm, I, I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Because it just it made sense to me, and I'd wondered why they hadn't done that, but they uh, they've changed that up, and so that's uh, that's good. And and so as I mentioned, we're starting a, a new three-year cycle. The, the Gospel Project curriculum takes um, kids and adults and youth through the Bible over a period of three years, and uh, and then after three years, through again. Now you can't go through the Bible. Uh, and, and cover everything in three years. You can read through the Bible in you know, less than three years. But to actually study, uh, you know, you can't study the entire Bible in any kind of detail in three years. It's, it's really, it's a lifetime and you'll never, you'll never exhaust the scriptures. Um, so, so there will be some things that, that this cycle will cover. Like, for example, we're not going to look at all the Psalms. You know, no. But some we will, and uh, uh, but then there's some things that are in every every single cycle, and I, this is one of them. Genesis one, you know, yeah. So you get the idea. Anyways, um, <clears throat> so we're, so we're in Genesis chapter one. We're starting this um, this morning, this week, and we spent the month of August in the book of Revelation. So now we're going to be looking backward as far as we can. We, we were looking forward as far as we could. Now we're going to be looking backward as far as we can. Uh, we are in the beginning. Uh, that's what the word Genesis means, by the way. It means beginning. And um, much of Scripture, most of Scripture, almost all of Scripture, uh, consists of eyewitness accounts of events at least the narrative parts. Eyewitness accounts of events that, have, that, that have occurred. Um, but the first two chapters in Genesis is a little different that way. Um, because there were no people there to see it or to witness it. Um, who was there? 
God was there. And so, similar to the book of Revelation in that sense, because nobody has been in the future to witness it either. So the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus uh, and his second coming, which is still future, uh, and only God can witness to that. And he does. And similarly, the book of Genesis, the first two chapters of Genesis, uh, God is God's witness and uh, God's account of what he uh, calls uh, the beginning. Now, it's not his beginning, as we see, but the beginning of everything else. So with regard to origins and the origins, uh, our origins and the origins of the planet and the origins of the entire universe, what we have here is God's account and for those who might want to point out um, that that's not a very uh, scientific approach, um, I would just uh, point out that um, the evolutionary theory that some people embrace uh, who don't want to embrace God's account isn't very scientific either. Uh, this sermon is not coming to you as a, a, a refutation of atheistic materialist, uh, materialistic beliefs about origins, uh, but I do want to, uh, uh, you to understand that uh, atheistic uh, evolutionary uh, theory is conjecture. It's nothing more than conjecture conjecture, and it's no more scientific than uh, belief in creation. And for clarification purposes, there's two basic views. I'm saying basic, two, two broad categories of, of beliefs with regard to origins. One is a uh, theistic and the other is atheistic. Um, in relatively recent days, uh, some uh, within church circles have attempted to combine belief in a creator with uh, belief in evolution. Um, but that's uh, very problematic. It's commonly referred to as theistic evolution, if you see that phrase somewhere. Theistic evolution basically is the belief or the teaching that God used evolution to create uh, everything that you see. Um, I don't want to take the time this morning that we don't have to go into all this kind of thing in detail. Um, uh, but I, I, I'll make a, a brief statement and say that the theory of evolution has little to commend it scientifically. And those who are zealous to try and sell it to us as scientific are disingenuous in doing so because they misrepresent what it means for something to be scientific. Evolutionary theory remains speculative and unproven. And nor does it have any satisfactory philosophical value either as it presents a world that is void of any type of real moral guidance, no sense of belonging, no meaning, no purpose, and absolutely no hope. 
The theory of evolution with its billions of years proposal is problematic in any form. And the idea of God using evolution is a completely unnecessary compromise with what the Bible says. As opposed to the theory of origins that the world embraces, we have God's account that we're looking at today. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, when we first meet God, as it were, on the pages of Scripture, we learn that he existed prior to anything else and everything else. And that he is the creator of everything else. That's pretty simply put, but that's what we see here. Um, and as we uh, go on through uh, the pages of Scripture, we see that God existed for all eternity and will exist for all eternity because he is eternal. So there's no preceding context here in the beginning of things for us to look at, uh, only to say that God himself precedes it all uh, because he is eternal. Um, Look at uh, this uh, Psalm 90, verse 2. Uh, uh, Dave, uh, I'm going to get you to put that up. And I'm going to turn this on because I forgot to do that earlier. And I'll be turning my back to you. Uh, maybe. Yeah, there we come. Uh, all the time, and I don't want to be doing that. There we are. Okay, so this is from Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had uh, formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So that's the scriptural teaching about God's existence, that he is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. Now, if you're sitting here trying to wrap your mind around that, I would encourage you not to bother. You don't want to hurt yourself. Andy talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about the fact that God is eternal, and what that, uh, and what, the, and some of what that means for us. But the, um, so, so there's no, uh, no preceding context here for all the of the things in the beginning, except to say that God precedes it all. But the literary context is is insightful. Um, we understand that the human author here is. Uh, Moses, or ed author or editor, however you want to look at that, uh, is Moses. And we attribute the first five books of the Bible to Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, we, sometimes we call it the Pentateuch. Sometimes we call it the Decalogue. In Scripture, it's ref uh, those books are referred to as the books of the law. Or sometimes, and particularly in the New Testament, it'll just say the law, the law, the law. And when you read in the New Testament, it talks about the law, the law, the law. It's not talking about the law of the land unless... It specifically says that. If it just says the law, it's talking about God's law. And it's talking specifically about the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and that's why sometimes they'll say the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Well, the law and the prophets is the first five books of the Bible and then all the other books in the Old Testament. Um, so that's uh, kind of the, uh, a little bit of the literary context. The historical context of the giving of the book of Gen Genesis is, is, is this. Uh, so Moses... Um, 
is leading Israel as deliverer from Egypt, and God is through the the uh, mediating ministry of uh, Moses forming a nation, a people, a nation of Israel, a people who belong to God, and and uh, whom God has formed as a nation um, through the covenant that He has made with them, calling them out of the nations. Uh, and entering a relationship with them that they would live out of in the midst of all of the other nations of the earth with all of their various gods. So the prevailing view of the day when these words were written, these words being Genesis chapter 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, was a, uh, the prevailing worldview was a polytheistic worldview. It was an, uh, a theistic worldview, but more properly, a polytheistic, a belief in many gods, different gods. And so the key part of the central thrust of this passage and the passages that follow and right through the whole Bible, even into the New Testament, part of the key thrust is the refuting of the various false gods and the revelation of the one true God, the God of creation. The one God who is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, who made absolutely everything else that exists. Now, what about the other gods? The Bible talks about other gods. Well, Paul, Paul is very helpful in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all, through whom all things, and th- uh, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So the uh, the other gods are really not gods; they're false gods. They're wannabe gods, but they're not real. They're imagined. They're believed in, but they don't really actually exist. Because the reality is, there's only one God. And the the proof of that, if you will, theologically speaking, is that he's the creator. He made everything that exists except for he himself who has always existed. Um, and that, that's what it means for God to be God. And that's why we worship him. We worship him because he is worthy of our worship. We worship God, the one true God, because he is great, 
greater than all that is. God most high, he's sometimes referred to in Scripture. Um, God is the only thing that exists that was not made, while he himself uh, is the maker of all things. So in the Psalms, now let's uh, listen to this. This is Psalm 95. Just listen to what the psalmist says. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We're thinking about worship here, okay? We worship God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. You see there the idea of ownership, and that He is uh, the greatest of gods, even greater than the imaginative gods, even greater than the concepts, the false concepts that we have of God. God is greater than all of that. And uh, the psalmist goes on, uh, the next psalm, which is Psalm 96, he says, Oh, sing to the Lord uh, a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Creator of the universe. That's the God of the Bible, the one true God. So from its very first sentence, the scripture establishes the one true God who created all that is as the only worthy object of our worship. We were made by him and for him. We, uh, we are to live by him and for him. And that is the theological, uh, philosophical starting point for life. And if you don't start there, you will not end up where you need to be. It's a starting point for understanding everything, every single thing. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read on, we see that God filled the heavens and he filled the earth with his creative power. And we will read some of those verses um, in a moment. But the title uh, today uh, in the curriculum is God's uh, good world. And uh, I want for us to think some together uh, about the reason for that. Um, as the chapter 
um, Genesis 1, I'm talking about, as, as it unfolds here, the, uh, the, the writer um, chronicles, uh, again, which we believe to be Moses, but receiving from, from God himself, the chronicle of the days of creation. And, his, and as we read down through there, there are some recurring phrases. Um, that's always interesting. That's always important when things are said multiple times. Right, that makes it make uh, really makes a point. And so, one of the recurring phrases that you will notice uh, as we read down through here is the phrase "and God said." Now, in a moment, we're going to read down through. You'll see that come up over and over. And God said, and right along with that is another recurring phrase, which is the phrase "and it was so." And God said, and it was so. And this establishes God's absolute power and authority over everything as creator. So, before we, we actually read through some of these verses, take a look at Psalm 33, verses 6, 8, and 9. We'll put them up there. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That's verse 6. Then verse... Uh, 8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. If you were to ask the question, how did, exactly did God create the heavens and the earth? Genesis 1 and tells us, and, this, and the psalmist tells us, he did it simply by commanding it to be self. That's power and authority that is beyond. It's, it's like saying, you know, when we say God is eternal, it's like I can't wrap my mind around that. Well, I can't wrap my mind around this either. You can't, because that, but that's what it means for God to be God, do you understand? That's how great God is. Um, now, again, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's something else I want you to, to be aware of. You may be aware of this already, but if you are, it'll be a good re reminder for you. But the word there for create, in the beginning, God created. That word for created is bara in Hebrew. Uh, and it's, it's a significant, something special about that word, bara. And here's what's special about it. It, it means to create or to make, um, but it's never used it's used in the Old Testament in numerous places, but never with uh, people or with man as a subject. Only God. Now, there's another word, asa, that means to create or make. And that word in Hebrew, it appears throughout the Old Testament, and it appears, uh, it's used a number of times in Genesis 1 and 2. But that word, asa, is used uh, with both, uh, sometimes with God as a subject and sometimes with people as a subject. And so so what, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that we can make things, asa. God can make things, asa. But only God 
Only God can uh, make uh, things bara. So what does that mean? Well, theologians talk about what they call creation ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. Now, this is really important and really kind of cool. Um, you and I are made in the image of God. We're going to be looking at that in, you know, uh, next week, I think. Um, but, and, we, and, we're, and being made in the image of God, we can, we can make stuff. We can be creative. Some of you are amazingly creative. I think uh, Aaron, uh, or not Aaron, um, Beth. Beth uh, posted uh, on uh, Facebook. Uh, she started at, she's at Mount A, Beth McKinnon. She's at Mount A, and she posted some, some drawing work that she did. I was like, wow, I can't do that. It's amazing to me when people can do that. People are so creative, isn't it? Don't you wish you could do stuff like that? Some of you can, I know. And, and, uh, but you know, some of you write songs, and some of you can, can build stuff. And it's, ama- it's an amazing thing. It's, it's, it's an aw- it is an awesome thing. And God can do that too. But here's the difference. We, when we create, we take the stuff that God made and we re- rearrange it. And God does that. Even throughout Genesis 1 and 2, it's like he, he made man from the dust of the earth. He made the earth, bara, and then he made asa, man, from the dust of the earth. And you and I can make stuff. But only God, think about it, only God can make anything and everything from absolutely nothing. That's what it means when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And our, our ability to make things comes from him. That's right, yeah. Um, Andy, a couple weeks ago, uh, shared this verse, but uh, Revelation 4.11 it's not just an Old Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament uh, thing here. Uh, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Ex nihilo, out of, of nothing. So everything God made, had a starting point, but God is already there in the beginning. He's before everything and everyone, he, everything and everyone, and He is above everything and everyone. He's the source of life. Everything that exists and everyone that exists depends upon God for its or our existence. And that's what it means, after all, for God to be God, for real. And so in the scriptures, God calls us right from the very beginning, to put our faith in him and to worship him alone. God presents himself to us as um, with complete authority and absolute claim upon every one of us that requires a response 
by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. We are to acknowledge him. We are to read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we are to acknowledge that God, only God, can do that and did do that. That's who he is. We are to acknowledge him um, and we are to recognize him as the sovereign overall, Lord, judge, defender, king, whatever, whatever names, human names and titles on it you want that help you understand that he is absolutely, completely the end-all and the be-all of existence. That's who he is. That's what it means for God to be God. But there's something else very profound in Genesis chapter 1 about God. I mean, what we've been talking about is pretty profound, <laughs> isn't it? Like, how deep. The word profound, by the way, means deep. Do you know, do you know what the word deep is in Spanish? Anybody here speak Spanish? Yeah, which is where we get the word profound. Anyways, just as a side. Um, so we think about God, the eternal God. That's profound. But there's something else in this passage in Genesis 1 that's, that is, uh, I don't know if it's equally profound, but it's very profound, and it's very significant, and it's very important. Um, let's, uh, let's read some of these verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know whether I gave these to you, Dave. I might have forgot. I'm sorry. Um, that means you might have to read your, your own Bible instead of reading off the screen. Oh, did you bring your Bible? This is so embarrassing sometimes. Maybe you don't have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, um, you should get one. We could help. We could. We could probably help you. Probably help you with that. Um, I'm gonna take. I got these two. I'm gonna put them here so I don't forget them. Dave's probably quick enough to put them up there anyway, but I'm just going to read some of the verses there. I find when I'm, um, we go through a music practice Sunday mornings, if I'm, if I'm uh, involved in the music, my, by this time my throat is, is uh, kind of dealing with pressure. Okay. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. Darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and morning uh, the second, second day. Verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. By the way, one of the arguments used by evolutionary theorists uh, for the uh, billion of year old earth is the distance from the stars and the light traveling from the stars. And, you know, for it takes like you know, millions of years for light to get from the far of the stars to us so that enable us to see them. Uh, and they think that that's, that's just proves that the, earth just, it, the world has to be billions of years old. Uh, did you notice here that when God made uh, fruit trees, he didn't make seeds, he made trees? Trees bearing fruit. In chapter 2, when he makes men, man, the first man, the man, and the woman, he doesn't make babies. He makes grown-up people. So I think when he made the stars and, and the light, I think they, uh, they were just, it was just like that. Anyways. Uh, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, in it, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And as you read on down through there, it talks about God making the, 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 star, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And, and then later on, he, he made uh, us, the beasts of the field. And, all, and, then, and then he made us. He made people. But did you notice some of the recurring phrases? You see the recurring phrase, and God said, and the recurring phrase, it was so. There's also recurring phrases, uh, the phrase, uh, the morning and the evening, days. Days, that's why we call them the days of creation. And there's another uh, recurring phrase in there, and that's the phrase, after its kind. Very important theological statement that's made over and over again that has amazing implications for the way that God designed uh, life to be lived. But there is another recurring phrase in here that stands out and is wonderful in its um, considerations, and that phrase is, it was good. That phrase stands out. God is great, but God is not only great. God is good. And the reason I say that, I can say that, is because it, the text doesn't say in so many words God is good. But what it says is everything that God made was good. And the reason that everything that God made was good there's only one reason, and that's because, say it with me, God is good. Now, uh, just so that you understand that uh, I'm, not, you know, I'm not making up these observations, uh, take a look at Psalm 136. The Hebrews got this. They, they got this. They connected those dots just like that. Because it's so profoundly important. Think about it. 
not only is God great, but God is good. Look at Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now jump down to verse 5, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. God is great, and hallelujah, God is good. Everything he does is good. Everything he makes is good. Every activity of God is good. And I don't mean to good in the way we sometimes think good, because sometimes we use the word good to mean okay. Oh, I'm good, I'm good. Don't worry about me, I'm good. Or average, as in could be better. That's not the way the Bible talks about God's goodness. In the Bible, the goodness of God is an absolute goodness. God is completely good. Everything he does is good. God is 100% good. And all his ways are good. How significant is this? It's life-changing. Consider the alternative. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, sovereign Lord of the universe. If he wasn't good. Don't even want to think about that. But... But that's exactly what Satan uses as a temptation in Genesis chapter 3. Make, make no mistake, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, and you read Genesis chapter 3, and most of you have already read it anyway, the serpent slithers up to that, that uh, first woman and the man who was there, and he says... Has God said you shouldn't eat from the trees of the garden? And the woman says, God told us not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden because, or, or, to, or to touch it because if you do, you, you will surely die. And Satan, the serpent, says, Oh, you, you will not surely die. But God knows that if you ate, you would be like him. You'd be like him. 
And she looked at that. She looked at that fruit. And she saw, wow, that looks really good. And underwriting that whole scene is Satan's or the serpent's strategy to get them to question the goodness of God. See, what he was basically saying is God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. You are missing out because God is holding out. See, what he's saying is really is God really isn't good. And you know what? Every single time you and I transgress one of God's commandments, we eat that fruit. Every single time. Think about it. Why, why do we sin? Why do we go against a commandment of God? We do it because we think we will be better off somehow by indulging. What is, what is the implication of that? What are we really thinking? Deep down inside, what are we really thinking? I tell you, this is so significant. Oswald Chambers, that uh, well-known uh, devotional writer, he says, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Now, it's not just unbelievers who struggle to believe uh, in God that he's good. It, it's, you know, I do a, 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 a lot of, you know, we're trying to help people through issues and problems in their lives, and I, I see this all the time. And sometimes it's, it's very profound, and sometimes we don't even realize, that people don't even realize that this is what they're struggling with because it's so deeply ingrained in us and we, we, we live so much of our lives in denial. And, but it's not just, you know, it's not just other believers or some believers that struggle to uh, believe in, in, in God that he is good. I, I struggle with that. Daily. Continuously. Uh, and so do you. <laughs> now, when the Bible says that we're all sinners, it means in part that we are all capable of committing all sins. It's not like you get converted and, and suddenly you have two lists of sins, you know, the sins that, you, uh, that, you, uh, that you're tempted to and succumb to and, and, and the other sins that, you know, that you don't. Um, it doesn't work that way. There's not there's not two lists of sins. You know, there's some of us may we all have uh, maybe what the Bible calls besetting sins, which are things that we are more tempted by than maybe some others. But the reality is, is that when the Bible says that we are sinners and we're all sinners, it means that we're all capable of committing all sins. And I'm sure that that would uh, you know include uh, this sin, the sin of attributing evil intentions to God. You know, the, the, the Bible says that Christ 
was tempted at all points. Do you think that you and I would be? Do you think that it's a temptation for you and I to question and to ascribe evil intentions to God? What do you think? Greatest sin is the sin of unbelief, isn't it? And sometimes we think this stuff is just uh, too basic for us. These basic principles, foundational basic principles, Genesis 1 and 2, God is great, God is good. You say, that's what we need to teach our children. You know, it's like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, been there, done that. Let's get into something really meaty, something we can really sink our teeth in because we're, we're beyond that, those, those basic, simple, foundational things. <laughs> no, we're not. I can't think of very many things that has more power to change your life than the understanding of the goodness of God. I, a moment ago, I, I read uh, uh, Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Think about that. Let it sink into your soul. Listen, the reason God loves us is because he's good. It's not because you and I somehow are worthy of his love. That's not why he loves us. It's not because, because we've somehow lived up to some kind of a, of a standard, lived our lives in a certain way. That's not why he loves us. God loves us because God is good. In fact, John the Apostle said it this way. He said, God is love. If you want to understand God, if you want to, want to appreciate who he is and, and what he's like, You can't really understand God or life at all until we understand that God is good. He loves us. God loves you. Listen to this. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the, to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are, not, we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. 
See, the Hebrews got it. But sometimes we struggle to get it. And don't get confused about, some people get confused too that, that this uh, is an Old Testament, New Testament thing. You know, that God in the Old Testament is sovereign, infinite, eternal, holy, and, 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 and uh, great, greatest, high, God most high. And then you come in the New Testament and you meet Jesus and he, Jesus is so down to earth, literally. And he's so willing to humble himself and uh, identify with us and be the, uh, what the scriptures call a friend of sinners. And to humble himself and to, to uh, suffer and to die for us. And... Uh, And we get confused, I think, that somehow God has changed. It's one of the other things about God is he's immutable. He's not capable of changing, which is an oxy, uh, a par uh, paradox. But anyways... Um, you know, sometimes when we study Scripture, we come in the New Testament, and we, you know, we talk about Jesus, and our hearts fill up with this gratitude. We consider this just jaw-dropping willingness he, he demonstrates to to sacrifice, to humble himself, to sacrifice. And 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 sometimes I think that we start to think that Jesus is like our buddy. You know, he's just so he's just so good to us. How many of you have read the great, what they call the Great Commission in Matthew passage? Probably say with me, go and make disciples of all nations. All right, it's right after Jesus resurrects from the grave, raises from the grave, and he meets with his disciples there on the mount, and, and, uh, and then it's just before he ascended. And it says that he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And law, you know, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and law, I'm with you always, to the end, even to the end of age. Do you know what it says right before that? I know I'm going a little bit over, but I, I, I'm almost done. Right before that, it says, "And when the disciples saw him," this is verse 19, I believe, or 18 of Matthew 24, Matthew 28. Sorry. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then it adds, uh, but some doubted. I want to give Dave put one more scripture um, up because this was also, if you, if you look at the curriculum today, um, you'll see that the, this, the, the passages that they set out there are actually two. Genesis 1 is... Um, one of the passages, but this is the other passage. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And, and you, you, I, you probably know this, but just, just as a reminder, that's talking about Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand 
And and I want you to think about these words and think about how we are called to worship God and worship him alone and recognize the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God come to rescue us. The eternal Son of God, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, eternal, sovereign Lord of the universe come for us. Humble himself. Suffered unimaginably died on that cross to save us. Do you know why? Because not only is God great, he's good. He loves you. He loves you that much. I know that there's some days when you might find that very hard to believe. I, I have those days, too. And some of you have had days that some of the rest of us can have a hard time even relating to. But this is what we understand about God. This is what we need to understand about him. So I'm going to just uh, close uh, in in prayer, um, if you're if you're here today and you know, some of these things are you know are relatively new to you, I do have something I can give you that I think you'll appreciate. Uh, I'll take them with me, and uh, you can uh, you can see me um, as you make your way out. Um, okay, I'm looking at this clock. It's 12:08, and so I'm going to try to make a two-minute prayer. Think I can do it? How ready is your heart to give thanks to God for his love for you? When I say love, I want you to think about the cross. The cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Jesus, Lord Jesus, we are not worthy. We are not worthy to worship you. We are not worthy of your great love. But we thank you, Lord, that this is not at the end of the day about us or our competencies or our abilities or anything else, Lord. It's about you and the kind of God you are. You're just that, that kind of God. Great beyond our imaginations. And yet, and yet, the height and the width and the breadth of your love for us. 
is also unfathomably great beyond our imaginations. Lord, help us not to question your goodness. Lord, thank you for demonstrating your goodness in such a matchless way, coming, suffering, humbling yourself, dying for us so that we could be saved. Lord, I just ask for those who may be here today that have never put their trust in you for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of sin, and for eternal life, I pray that you would give them that, that unction right now, Lord, that they would just put their trust in Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Give them eternal life, Lord, by faith, even now. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.